The following Bible study was given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. All right. Why don't you turn with me to Song of Solomon as we, uh, Lord willing, wrap up the book tonight. We're in chapter 6, Song of Solomon chapter 6. One of the things that we uh, did, we didn't quite finish chapter 5 on uh, on Wednesday night last, um, but we took, took it on on Sunday and looked at the last um, several verses there in chapter 5. And... Um, and it's, it's uh, such a beautiful part of the story. If you're just joining us, or maybe just to get us all back up to speed, remembering where we were, um, this is sort of the second iteration or stanza that is kind of the same in this sort of love, love opera, um, where if you recall, you know, the bridegroom came a-knocking at her door, but she didn't get up. Uh, soon enough. She kind of, you know, took her time. She said, oh man, I've already washed my feet. I've already prepped for bed. And now here he is at my door and she kind of is upset and trying to figure out what to do. So she finally gets up and goes to the door, but by that time it's too late. He's already gone and she can only smell his cologne, (laughs) if you would, the fragrance that he was there. Oh, I know he was here. I I can smell him. And it's this beautiful fragrance that she smells, but it breaks her heart and she runs out the door looking for her um, beloved, you know, and running around the town. And the people sort of start abusing her. And, you know, um, uh, she's saying, I'm sick with love. And, you know, uh, they, it says that they even smote her. Uh, if that means hit her or pushed her around, I don't know. But she said, I, haven't, I can't find my beloved. And then the, the ladies asked, Who is, what's your beloved? What's the big deal? What's the difference between him and any other man? And then on Sunday, we looked at her explanation. She said, oh, my beloved, you want to know about him? He's so much better than everybody else. And she gave us what, what we looked at was 12 attributes of her beloved, the shepherd king, which is a beautiful picture of our beloved, if you would, uh, Jesus Christ, the shepherd king. And uh, it's such a beautiful illustration of, of who Jesus really is. The de- description she gives here is, is uh, profound. And what it does is it makes us realize, you know, she, she sort of missed an opportunity to be with her, uh, you know, beloved. And it causes me to wonder, you know, how many times do you and I miss important opportunities to just encounter the Lord, to be with our beloved? And it's such a weird deal because um, church and Christian disciplines... Um, I say going to church or, or reading your Bible or prayer or fasting, like what are the, you know, communion table, baptism. There's so many things where the Lord, our beloved, invites us to come in and spend time with him. And he's the faithful one. And he's the one that's there. And he's the one that always shows up. And um, it's interesting because the one thing about, you know, a love relationship, hopefully it's not some dutiful obligation, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, true love will sort of overcome that ugly obligation sort of mindset. Um, maybe the, some of you with Valentine's Day last week, um, some of you, it was just exciting to go and get something for your, um, your husband or wife because you love them. But um, the problem with Valentine's Day uh, with a lot of people is some of us kind of say, man, it's, it's a little bit like a marketing ploy. I mean, Hallmark, chocolate companies, flower companies, man, they just, they just spin it up all, all, all that they can. And, and, um, and you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Uh, and I think that Valentine's Day is really stupid. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I got a, I got a d- disclaimer here. I think it's stupid. And I'll tell you why. Because, um, because it's, sort of, it's sort of this one day where we're sort of obligated. And everybody knows you're obligated. You better come through kind of thing. Now, fortunately, I am not married to a girl that would say, you better do something on Valentine's Day. Like, she doesn't do that. How's that? Is that pretty good? Thank you. I've been working on that. Um, uh, 
man, she, she could care less about Valentine's Day. And, and plus, you know, it's pagan, Venus, Cupid. It's all ancient Babylonian religion. It's, it's really a funny thing when we, uh, Oba Brit, there was St. Valentine. Well, that's a nice uh, stretch. Uh, stretch the story, give God the glory. That's great. But, but uh, truly, it's a hallmark holiday. And there's tons of money in it for people. And so they keep, you know, puffing air into it every year, making people feel pressure to have to deliver. But you know what's really cool? is when you have a love relationship that sends flowers just because, just because it's whatever day. Um, it doesn't even have to be a day to, to love each other or to express that kind of love. Um, now, one thing that I like to do is Debbie knows how much I hate Valentine, Valentine's Day, but it's almost become fun for me to go nuts on Valentine's Day because she knows I hate Valentine's Day. But she also knows that uh, I don't have the pressure to do anything. But because of that, it's almost more fun for me to do something. Does that make, does that make sense? So that's where I'm at with Valentine's Day. You'll, you'll find me, you know, getting the flowers and doing all that stuff because I think Valentine's Day is the dumbest thing in the world. But I happen to be married to the greatest wife in the world. And yeah, thank you very much. I said, no, no, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. But, but. The reason I say that is because I sense this sort of in the story. Um, you know, she's, she's realizing she missed an opportunity to be with her beloved. And it wasn't just out of obligation. She just knew she missed the time that was going to be really romantic and good. And I wonder how many times do we go to church because we're obligated? Well, it's Sunday, so I better do my duty and get my Christian mark on the chalkboard in heaven. Okay, went to, heaven, went to church this week, you know. And, and, and instead of it being a get-to, it becomes a got-to. And that's what we have to really guard our hearts about. Um, if, as soon as your relationship with Jesus is a got-to, man, you're, you're, you're actually going to probably be doing damage just as if your wife, guys, on Valentine's Day knows, knows that you're doing it just because you've got to. Do you think she's really going to be impressed if she knows that you hate Valentine's Day and you've just got to do it? So what we need to do is understand that it's not a got to, that it's a get to. We get to do things that are loving and we get to interact with our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope, I hope things are not just a got to to you, to read your Bible, to pray, to go to the table of communion, to be baptized, to, to walk with the Lord. I hope it's something you do out of a, rea- a response to his love. We're going to find out who loved whom first. Was it, did we love God or did God love us? We're going to talk about that tonight. But um, this seems to be that she realizes she, the reason she's kind of desperate and sort of freaked is she realizes she missed this opportunity. Now, there's a scripture uh, before we get into this chapter, you know, chapter eight, pardon uh, pardon me, chapter six is where we are. Before we get into chapter six, let me read you a, a book of Revelation verse. And I love this verse because a lot of people quote it, you know, in context of evangelism where, you know, the Lord is seeking those that are unsaved. And what is he doing? Well, he's knocking at the door of their hearts. And if anyone will let him in, you know, then he'll be with them and stuff. And we think of that as salvation. But in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, you guys know this, some of you by memory, you got to understand who he's talking to. The context of Revelation 3, if you know your book of Revelation, you know, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is to the churches of Asia Minor. Here's the Lord Jesus talking to his bride, the church, the already saved, the people that are within the household of faith. And what does he say to the church, the saved people? He says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. You know, it's interesting because the context of this was um, to this church at Smyrna. Um, pardon me, not Smyrna, but, you know, Smyrna is the one that was persecuted and, and they needed the Lord and the Lord's knocking at Smyrna's door. And then the church at Laodicea, what were they? Well, they were the lukewarm church uh, and they lacked, you know, it's, it says that they were neither hot nor cold, but they were lukewarm. What's the Lord doing? He's knocking at that church's door. We could talk about Thyatira and Pergamos that let sin into their churches. And there's Jesus knocking at the door. See, I think this is the summary. It's, it's not just for the church of Laodicea. I think it's for Ephesus, Smyrna, you know, uh, all these, uh, Thyatira, Philadelphia, all of the churches 
um, that speaks of all the church ages, by the way, and church history. I mean, it's quite an amazing thing, Revelation 2 and 3 does. But at the end of this little dissertation about the churches, he wraps it up with, Behold, listen, is what he's saying when he says, Behold, listen up. I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. I love the, the picture. You know, maybe you guys remember the Holman Hunt painting. Um, it's a pretty famous painting, so probably at some point maybe in your life you've seen it. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, if you memorized a verse in Sunday school, you might get a little treasure. And they, I remember one time I memorized a verse and they gave me this little mirror. And on the back side of the mirror, there was the picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking. And it was the Holman Hunt picture. It's famous. When Holman Hunt painted that picture, by the way, interesting thing happened. It was in an exhibition, and they unveiled this picture that he had painted. And they were, the critics came, and they were looking at it, and they said, Mr. Hunt, there's something missing. You forgot to put a doorknob on the door. And uh, he said, I didn't forget the doorknob. The doorknob is only accessible from within. You know, and it's really a great truth that, you know, Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't, you know, blast down the door. He doesn't push down the door. He just stands there gentle, gently and knocks. And if anyone will open the door, the doorknob's on the inside of your heart. And if anyone will open the door, he will come in and sup with him and he with me. This is this, this close, intimate relationship that Christ wants to have with you. And you've got to open the door of your heart. And that's, that's where it's at. So back to Song of Solomon, it says here, you know, that this woman, for, she didn't get the door open in time. And so she missed the opportunity. And thus, she's freaked out and she's looking for her beloved. Well, in the context there, then the lady said, well, what's so big about your beloved? And she explained it. And now what happens after that? Well, that's chapter six. Um, and the women that were there of Jerusalem, they start this chapter, the choir that's off on the side, uh, the women that she just convinced that her beloved's better than all the other beloveds. So what do they say, the women? Verse 1, chapter 6. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? Do you see a change of heart in the choir, the women? Remember what we heard them say last time, verse 9. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Um, Now they're saying, where is your beloved? We want to see him too. Um, And this speaks into what you and I are called to do. We are called to magnify the Lord. Remember how the psalmist said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's what you and I are called to do, to point people to Christ, our beloved, that they might see him. And for some people, they'll never see him unless you're the one who's pointing to him, saying, look at Jesus. That's what she's doing in verses 10 through 16 in in the previous chapter, she's pointing people to her bridegroom. And that's what you and I are supposed to do. We're to speak of his glory and uh, all those attributes of Christ. And, And hopefully people will see Christ and your love for him and they'll be drawn in the same way. And so they're saying, we want to seek him too with you. That's, that's a good result. So the woman, she answers in verses two and three. My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. So here, you know, she's, she, she uh, you know, found him um, because she worshiped him. Um, it's interesting, you know, she, she, she loved him so much and she finally figures out he's gone down to the garden. You know, you know what's great is, um, is uh, the, the idea of, of um, the, the beloved. And she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I, uh, maybe you remember the old song, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love. He feeds me at his banqueting table. These are all Song of Solomon words from an old song. Probably should have busted that one out tonight. I didn't think about that until just now. Uh, it's pretty old, the song, but, uh, but, uh, but it's true. Now, one of the things, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Um, I like the order of what, of what she's saying there. In 1 John chapter 4, let me read it to you, verse 9. You know, John always was talking about love and the love of Christ. Um, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, In this was manifested or made known the love of God toward us. 
Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, Man, this explains he loved us first and demonstrated his love dying on the cross for our sins. And he became the propitiation. That's a fancy doctoral word for the satisfaction, for the requirement for us to be saved. And then later on in that same chapter, that famous verse in 1 John four nineteen, it says, we love him because he first loved us. So when she's saying, I am my beloved's and he is mine, that order is kind of important because that's the truth. He loved us first. We sort of reciprocated because of his love. Um, is that important? I think it is. I think it's important to know that he sought you out while you were yet a sinner. While you were still messed up and tweaked, he looked for you. Um, remember back in the, maybe some of you guys remember back in the old days, remember the I Found It campaign? If you're old enough here, remember the yellow bumper stickers that all the Christians put on their bumpers? And the, and the, the point was, people were like, you found what? And then you're like, oh, since you asked, I found Jesus. And then you'd share people, it was great. I'm not knocking it, um, but it's just wrong. We didn't find nothing. He found us. He, you know, the Father sent Jesus to seek you out and to save you, to save the lost. Um, we love him because he first loved us. He sought you out while we were yet sinners. Christ came and died for us. And, and it, it, you know, I understand the nuance. We're just saying, hey, I found something and it's really great. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying if you want to be technical, which I kind of am one of those guys, sorry. Um, technically, he found us first. And then we just are faith and our love for Christ is simply a response to what he's already done. I hope we understand that. And, and the Bible actually takes time to teach us that. Uh, I think it's an important part of our faith to know that he took us out um, wretched as we were. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's like that story of Hosea that married the prostitute and finally bought her on a slave market when she was old, washed up, and unattractive. Hosea still took her and, and, and purchased her. Like the, the story of redemption, of Christ choosing you, man, it's so powerful. That, that's an important notion to understand, that he loved us first. We respond. And that's what she's saying in verse 3. I'm my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Well, now we have, in verses 4 through 10... Um, the, the, you know, shepherd king, the, the man, he now is going to talk. Again, some of, I'm not going to spend a lot of time debating about who's speaking when, um, but there will be differences, and, and it's because people struggle with who's talking at what time. And some of your translations say one thing, others of your translations say others, and it's a little bit tricky. But um, I'm, I'm going with kind of the majority of scholars of what they say, because I think they make some logical arguments of why, who's saying what. So I'm not, I've already talked about that, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But don't freak out if, if I say something that's different from what your Bible says. And if you don't like it, then good. Search the scriptures and you check it out yourself and see if uh, why you think uh, we should be uh, saying what we're saying. So it's always good to check that out yourself. So we have the man speaking in, in verse 4, Solomon, in verse 4. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Uh, is that something you used to say to your girlfriend, your wife? You're terrible. Terrible. No, the word terrible, King James, is uh, a word that back in 1611, the English word terrible could also be translated awesome. Um, the idea is he's, he's uh, saying she's beautiful, but he's, she's also saying, he's also saying that she's powerful. There's a, there's a certain strength to her uh, that's awesome. It's, that's what, when he's saying terrible is an army with banners. Banners, of course, are where you display your victories, your battle wins. And that's what he's acknowledging, her strength. He goes on in verse 5, turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats. There's the goat hair again. That appear from, uh, from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and there is not one barren among them. You're not missing any teeth. Verse 7, As a piece of a pomegranate are thy temples within thy locks. 
There are three score queens, 60, and four score concubines, 80, uh, and virgins without number. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Um, This might make some of us very uncomfortable because he's bringing up something that's a little bit of a sore subject, if you ask me. He's saying, all my other wives and concubines, uh, 60 queens and 80 concubines, well, Brett, that's the wrong number. Solomon had 700 wives. Oh, he's just getting started here in the story. Uh, <laughs> he's, 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 not, he's not there yet uh, with his uh, quantity. But um, this is something that kings in those days did. It does make me wonder, you know, isn't it funny how the Lord can use things that men are messing up? I don't believe once in the Bible does God condone polygamy. Never. But he does seem to um, regulate it. And it's interesting because even in this story that's supposed to be perfect, you kind of think, oh man, what, what's this deal with this, uh, the concubines and the queens? And he brings that in. It's almost like you, you almost wish he would have just left verse 8 out and said, yeah, um, you're better than all the other ladies. Um, but it, what's interesting to me is that the bride of Christ, as, as hard as this is to say, now don't, don't get me wrong, I'm, there's not one stitch of me that's condoning polygamy. But it's not hard to get my brain around this when I realize that there's a lot of people in this world And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's a lot of people involved in the church and he loves us all. And um, what's interesting is the Lord chose us, predestinated us. He foreknew who he chose. He adopted. I mean, there's there's this amazing thing that the Lord chose people over others. And he called them his bride. And so this is where this idea of the many brides and concubines, I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but it's not hard to get your mind around when you realize the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ is one body, but it's made up of a bunch of people. And, uh, and I, the Lord chose us. Why did he choose us? I have no idea, but I'm glad he did. I'm so thankful that I'm chosen and predestinated and adopted as a son. And and some of you as daughters in that context, man, he, he, he chose us. It's like the two little boys that were out on the playground. One was a, an adopted son. The other was a biological son and they lived under the same house with the same parents. And the biological son was sort of poking fun. He said, you know, you're adopted. I was born of my parents. He was trying to mess with them, you know, a little bit. But the little adopted boy said, oh, yeah, they were stuck with you. They chose me. (laughs) Uh, There's something about being adopted sons and daughters that makes my heart really glad that God adopted us and he took us as sons and daughters. That's what the Bible says. That's what, you know, the scriptures tell us. And so all that to say, you know, it's not hard for me when I see the concubines and the queens that he's talking about here. but, But his point is, he says, my dove... My undefiled, he says, you're, the, you're but one. You're the one and only is what he's really saying, that she is the choice. Um, all the other people saw her and blessed her. The queens and the concubines even praised her because she was fair above all of them. And I love that. So she was the chosen one. And that's why so many scholars argue that whoever this Shulamite woman is, um, it's, it's definitely, it seems that it'd be Solomon's true love. Because he can't have 700 true loves. This, whoever he's writing about here is probably his one true love. Well, she picks it up uh, in verse 11 and 12. Two verses. She says, I went down into the garden of nuts. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> remember the garden? We're his garden. Uh, that's kind of funny to me. Because remember we did a soul study on that. That we are his garden. And so she goes down to the Garden of Nuts. Yep, okay. Fits. Bunch of nuts. She goes down to the Garden of Nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadib. Um, now, 
What's she doing? She's going down to the guard. Now, um, boy, I, I wish we uh, had the bandwidth or the time to be able to go through this. But if you're interested, there, there's an interesting study um, that you can kind of follow where the, the Song of Solomon follows three visits to the garden. And they're at different seasons. One visit so far was to the springtime garden where everything had blossomed and everything was new and fresh and budding. The next one was when it was completely fruitful. And, you know, kind of like the, you know, month of August or September, but I don't know, you gardeners know when the veggies are just really popping out at its fullest. But this is the one that is later on where after the winter has come, it's almost like right now, you know, with the sun popping out today and yesterday, uh, I saw two Portlanders uh, just standing, husband and wife, just standing, looking up at the sun in a parking lot like this. And I was like, yeah, we're in Oregon. <laughs> you know, that sun comes out. We're like, oh, well, it feels so good. Little vitamin D, you know. And, um, but this is the visit right here where she's looking for new buds, new blossoms to see if the garden's fresh. And it's interesting because the, the study of the gardens, um, remember, we're his garden and the, the, the question and the answer, the question is, you know, our, what, what condition is our garden? Is it dead of winter? Or is it the blossoming, fruitful time of spring? Is it the most fruitful time? Um, our gardens, I think, have seasons. And, uh, and we want to be a fruitful garden to our Lord. And there's a whole study on this, but it seems that she goes down to see if there's any buds or, or blossoms on the garden. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and then she wants to, you know, uh, basically communicate to him with praise about the garden. Uh, so that's kind of what she's saying here. She's going to seek out if the garden is fruitful. And that's something we have to ask our own lives. Are our lives fruitful? Are we bearing fruit? Are we blossoming? Are we uh, pleasing? That, that, that's the question. Well, in verse 13, we have the choir sing once again, the women of Jerusalem. They say, verse 13, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will ye see in the Shulamite as it were the company of two armies? Um, They're wanting to, they're curious. Remember, we left these choir of women asking, let's see the beloved. And now they're saying, we want to see the the, the woman and the beloved. We want to see them together. We want to see the... um, the, the strength in the two of them, the beloved and the woman all together. And uh, it's interesting because they're asking a question, what will we see in the Shulamite? What are we going to see in this girl? Um, and did you know that's what the world is asking you right now? What are we going to see in you as a Christian that's going to be different than the rest of us? They asked what's different about the beloved, which is our Jesus. And we're supposed to say Jesus is different than Muhammad, Muhammad Buddha, Krishna, Oprah. Remember that study on Sunday? Jesus is different. He's better. Jesus is better than all that. But now they're asking the question, what will we see in the Shulamite? What are we going to see in you? And the world is asking that. What's, what's the difference about Jesus? But the world is also asking, what's the difference about the bride? And that's us. It was Gandhi who said something like, you know, um, you know, Jesus I can get behind and understand, but it's his followers that I have a hard time with. And sadly, that's oftentimes the case. The church you know, the world's looking at the church saying, what's the, what's the difference between you guys? I love it when I, I see people going into a secular workplace and there's something different about a person. And you sense the joy of the Lord and the beauty of the Lord that's upon them. And the world is drawn to that. The world does see the difference if you're living a different life. One of the things I'm most concerned about is it seems like it's almost hip right now and cool for the church to sort of act like the world. We, we want to blend in. We want to mix it up and we want to be relevant to the world and we want to be hip with the world. And, and the church tries to hang with the world and act the same and have no difference between us. Uh, and, and I understand that pressure, but the problem is the Bible says, come ye out from among them and be ye separate. Well, Brett, are you arguing that we should just be dowdy and shabby? Nope. I think the church, in every way, shape, and form, should be better than the world. Why? Because we have so much more. We have Jesus who saved us. We have the Holy Spirit that inspires us. 
Um, you know, there was a, there, throughout history, if you study your history, there were times where the church was at the, at the lead of culture, of architecture, of art, and of music, of influence. The church led the way. You know, some of the greatest music that was ever put out there were people like Johann Sebastian Bach. Anybody who's a musician knows that the guy was kind of a freak. His brain worked differently than anybody else. And I believe it was just kind of inspiration from God when he wrote some of those, um, those songs that he, that he wrote. It's incredible. And the world was, wow, this is incredible. And uh, he said, and Bach was the one who said every song that is written should be uh, in an expression given to God. Um, and the world said, wow, we're going to copy that. So a bunch of people copied Bach from then on out. And even to this day, musicians, whether they know it or not, they're playing Bach riffs, whether they like it or not, uh, because he was inspired. Now, what's the church doing? Are we cutting the way with fresh new stuff? Or are we listening to the world's music and saying, how can we sound more like them? How can we be hip and cool? And how can we draw people? You know, and if, we, if, this, if they're listening to this group, how can we sound like that to woo them in to the church? And the, the sad thing to me is a lot of times we're not as good at it, at, at copying. We should not be about cookie cutters. We should be about inspiration. You know, cookie cutter music, just trying to copy everybody else. We should be in the inspired ones. And that's why I think sometimes, and, and now don't get me wrong, I don't think this is always wrong, but have you ever noticed this? Uh, maybe, maybe you have, haven't, but um, some churches are trying so hard to woo people in and they're going to, oh, what should we do? How can we get people to come to our church? And it always cracks me up at stuff they do that they think it's going to somehow win the world over. I know. When we're doing our music, let's, let's be like a, a concert. We'll have smoke flowing off the stage and light show. And we'll, we'll make it all awesome. And the problem is they don't do it as well as the world. Uh, you're not on tour uh, in a stadium or a coliseum. You're at church. And, and so we try. Now, some churches probably do that better than others, and it kind of works and stuff. Uh, I'm not to- saying it's totally wrong. But I think that the problem is it's more the motivation and the method the method. It's like we're trying to copy when we should be the ones inspired with, with something different. And by the way, inspiration can come supernaturally natural. It's, I think sometimes it's sort of being who God called you to be, not trying to be someone else or act or sound like someone else. Be who God's called you to be, but do it in a way that is kind of natural, but supernaturally natural. Be inspired by the Spirit, but also be kind of who God made you to be and don't try to be someone else. I I sense that in Christianity, you know, whether it's blogging or art or music or all this stuff, there's people talking about what's cool and what's relevant. And yet we just come off really lame. That's the problem. Um, Christians are usually like three or four years behind the world when it comes to trying to be hip and cool. Forget that. Let's, let's be inspired by the Holy Spirit and let's, let's come up with what the Lord's called us to be and worship him in the way God's made us to worship him. I think there's a supernaturally natural method. And I suggest to you that some of the greatest architecture came out of Christian people who were just brilliant. God made them to be that way and they did something that was incredible. Um, musicians, poetry, art, um, all of that was an act of worship to God. And then the world copied them. And then the world got really good at it, and then the church started copying the world, and we lost our inspiration. I'm concerned about that. Something for you that are a little more of the artistic mind or creative mind, think about that one. And uh, I wonder what the Lord just might do through you. Well, that was a tangent. I didn't mean to get off on that. I'm sorry. Uh, but be that as it may, um, uh, what, will you, what will you see in the Shulamite? That's what, that's what really we have to ask. What does the world see in you, the bride of Christ? Do they see something different? Do they see someone who's got joy even though there's trouble? Do they see something when, when you have cancer and you're still rejoicing that, 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 that kind of freaks them out? What will the Shulamite woman, what will we see in her? Um, that's the question they're asking. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 7 
says that um, he hath raised us up together in verse 6, made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. There's, there's something the Lord wants to do in us. He's working within us something excellent and that the world might see, that the world might know through us his glory. That's what they're asking about the Shulamite woman. What's the big deal with her? Well, chapter 7, we see the shepherd king now. He's going to speak again, and he's going to start giving her more uh, words of love and expressions of his love for her and her beauty. Uh, We already did this several times. (laughs) Some of these are repetitive. When we read this, I want you to ask yourself, why do you think the shepherd king repeats himself? He's going to say the same things. Um, and repeat himself. Does he just not have much to say? Let's take a look here in verse 1. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes. Um, Hey, babe, don't take those shoes off. Uh, Your feet look great with shoes. (laughs) That's funny to me. Um, Sorry. Um, I don't know what the spiritual application of that is, but it is funny. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes. Um, you know, I, I joke about that, but I do wonder, do you remember the armor of God? What are the shoes that we're supposed to wear? Anybody? They're shod with the preparation of peace. Remember this whole thing about the armor of God? I wonder if that's maybe what we're talking about. You know, that, that when you put on your shoes of the armor, that, um, that, that peace that God gives us, gives us, maybe that's partially what he's talking about, that she's shod or has shoes of the preparation of peace. Uh, and he, he loves that about her. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of cunning workmen. Um, okay, you say, okay, so got the feet thing, uh, Ephesians 6.15, shod with the preparation of peace and all that. But um, what's this thing about, um, you know, the thighs? Well, the thighs are kind of the bigger muscles of the body. And, and you could make an argument about, you know, the strength and what have you. But maybe she, maybe, one thing we have to acknowledge in this description, maybe he just likes her body. Oh, did he just say that? Oh, it's going to get worse. Check this out. <laughs> Verse 2. Thy navel is like a round goblet. <laughs> which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, man, uh, you know, he's talking about the shape of her, you know, belly, uh, her navel and all this. And, and um, you know, you could get into this and kind of wonder, what's he talking about? But, but uh, he's, he's basically given descriptions that would be beautiful in 3,000 years ago to a person, uh, when you're talking about lilies and wheat fields and, and the goblet which holds the, the, uh, you know, the wine is the idea. And he's describing um, that. Um, and, and boy, each one of these things, we can talk about their meaning. You know, the, the navel, by the way, is something that, interesting in the Bible, there's, it's mentioned several times, but it, it often represents independence. And you can guess why. The cutting of the umbilical cord speaks of separation and independence. And so we could make these kind of connections when he's talking about her navel, um, which is this beautiful goblet like a wine glass. Um, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying. Um, but it might have to do with her independence. There's meaning behind all these things, especially as we, the bride of Christ, look at these uh, attributes. And the belly being a heap of wheat, which is a beautiful thing in Bible times. By the way, have you been following the plague of locusts? There's, there's 10 plagues going on in the world right now, almost like the days of Egypt. Um, but uh, those locusts are destroying Kenya, uh, parts of Africa. Um, it's, it's one of the worst plagues uh, ever. Um, some people are thinking, is this the apocalypse? Is this the end? You know, that's what people are talking about. And we can actually talk about plagues of locusts that the Bible talks about in the last days. We're having biblically proportioned plagues of locusts. We have disease with the coronavirus, all that stuff. What made me think of that, though, is this poor woman. I read an article today of this poor woman in Kenya that had a huge, beautiful field of sorghum, which is kind of like a wheat or grain. 
But in one day, the locusts came through and just demolished her whole field, which means, you know, we don't even think about that, but in, 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 in Africa, people are going to die because these, these whole fields are destroyed. They will starve this year. Um, when I used to go to Burkina Faso more often, um, you know, every time I'd go, I'd see people that weren't there anymore. And, and it was so sad because there were literally people that I'd met the previous time that had died in famine because of, because of food and drought and locusts and stuff like that. Um, it's something we don't even really see or feel here. Sad to say that we're disconnected so much. Um, so something for us to be praying about. How can our church help our brothers and sisters uh, in Africa, especially with this plague? But um, a field of wheat or a pile of wheat is a beautiful sight when your culture depends on it and it's your life. And that's what he's talking about, the beauties of provision and what have you. He goes on in verse 3, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Uh, This is a familiar theme, by the way. We read the same thing uh, in chapter 4. Um, But he added to it. He said, your two breasts are like two young rows or fawns that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Uh, So we talked about that. I'm not going to go into that one again. But it's going to come up over and over and over again. (laughs) You'll see what I mean. Um, So he says, uh, verse 4, thy neck is as, as a tower of ivory. Ivory speaks of purity. Neck, the connection between the head and the body. Uh, you as the body of Christ connected to the head, which is, what is the head of the body? Jesus. And so the connection is ivory of purity. That's how we're connected. It's our sin that separates us from, do you want to be a beheaded Christian? Sin. Uh, but if you want to have a connection to the head, then you, then you go for purity uh, through the uh, imputed righteousness of God. There's all kinds of pictures here that we could go over um, that, that's beautiful. Your neck is as a tower of ivory, purity. Thine eyes, middle, uh, middle of verse 4, like the fish pools in Heshbon, uh, by the gate of Bet-Ravim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like caramel, and um, a caramel, and the hair of thine head is like purple. The king is held in the galleries. So some of these are familiar, and we've talked about them from chapter 4 and uh, also uh, from parts of um, some of the previous descriptions here. But, but he's, uh, some of the newer things here, the head, uh, speaking of uh, Carmel, the word there could be translated crimson. Some of your newer translations might even have that word that means um, that we read, red hair, which is interesting. Um, but that always speaks of, um, though our sins be like crimson, they will be white as snow. The hair of thy head is like purple. Um, is she a punk rocker, Brett? Uh, well, I've noticed there's a lot of ladies that are doing purple hair now that are not punk rockers. It's kind of a thing now that do the purple hair. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a new look. But what does purple speak of in the Bible? Royalty. That's right. So she is of royalty, and the king is held in the galleries. Um, well, um, th- now that, that means, by the way, the king held, he's bound by her beauty is, is probably what that means when it says she's held or bound by looking at her beauty. Uh, verse 6, how fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. This, is thy, uh, this thy stature is like to a palm tree and thy breast to clusters of grapes. There he is again talking about a breast. We're not done with that yet. By the way, verse 7, thy stature is like a palm tree. Palm trees are great. You know, it's, it's interesting um, how uh, the, the book of Psalms talks about palm tree. And it says the righteous flourish like the palm tree. One thing about a palm tree is unlike like an apple tree or a pear tree, the older it gets, the more fruitful it becomes. Did you know that about the palm tree? It's kind of an interesting thing. And it's comparing her to a palm tree, which is kind of cool. Um, and and uh, again, the, the breasts, clusters of grapes, speaking of fruitful, uh, we've talked about, you know, nourishment and fruitful, but he, he brings that up again in verse 8. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breasts shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples. 
and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Wow, this is getting pretty hot and heavy, kind of steamy, uh, the description. Um, and so, you know, we, we look at this and, and the depth here is, is uh, plenty for us to dive into. But as here's what I would recommend for you to do. When you see the romance that's here, um, and, and we see it just as a practical love story, as I've told you before, but when it relates to Christ and his love for us, for you to ask yourself personally, and, and this might be awkward or uncomfortable for you, it's a little more uncomfortable in front of the whole church, but maybe when you're by yourself with your Bible, sometimes I wonder if Song of Solomon was not as much meant to be dug into the depths publicly. I wonder about this. Because I wonder if it's this intimate love letter between who? You and Jesus. I almost wonder if you, by yourself, without Athe Creek, without Pastor Brett, without an MP3 or a commentary or, or whatever, and you just sat down and really meditate on this and say, what does this mean? Um, because, by the way, I think that he obviously appreciates parts of her body. He's attracted to her. And, um, man, we can talk so much about this, um, about how he's, he's now mentioned three times in this chapter, her breasts. Some of you ladies are like, yep, men. <laughs> now, now, can I say something about that before I move on? Um, oh, we've, we've perverted so much in our culture. We've got to get away from, you know, I, I worry about young women today because, um, you know, what they see uh, is a bunch of men that are failing morally. Um, I know a lot of young women would ask, is there even a man out there that's not a creep, that's done something dastardly or evil? And, um, and uh, the answer to that is no, except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is truly holy and righteous. Um, and, and so we men are flawed and sinful, but so are you women. Women are flawed too. We're all flawed. And we can look at your flaws and you look at our flaws. But here's the thing. I, I want you to understand this. And, and don't get me wrong. And I'm, I'm way out of my league on this one talking about this. But the fact that men are attracted to parts of a woman's body, is that evil? Well, here's the thing that you have to understand. Um, God created men to be attracted to women as part of his plan. Part of the, the plan was that men, wouldn't it be interesting if men just lost all interest with women altogether? Um, I know a lot of men that I, that I know that wish they had a switch on the side of their forehead, like a light switch right here. And when they're in front of their wife, pff, man, nothing but um, attracted to every part of her body and loving only his wife. And then as soon as he walks out the door, psh, turn off that switch, go to work and never think about another woman all day long. Um, a lot of men wish they had that switch. God didn't give us that switch. So what did we do with that? Well, men trying to be pure and love, have a one and only and be faithful to their wife. Um, we, 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 we fight for that. We try for that. Meanwhile, the world has put a full court press on men, throwing lustful image after lustful image after men. And, and then when men are saying, wow, we're attracted to that, and they get stumbled by it and sucked into it. I'm not making a defense for men. I'm not making a defense for pornography or anything like that. It's all sinful, lustful, evil. But the world throws that at men 24-7. And then, then women are like, I can't believe they like breasts. Why are they so attracted? And there's this kind of tension when, and this is where the tension gets really painful. It's, it's like the young, godly couple newly married and he's attracted to her and she's attracted to him but there's something that even in the marriage bed they feel like somehow it's defiled somehow it's sinful or wrong or they're doing something that's not holy or godly and it's the world that has dirtied up sexuality it's the world that has ruined sex it's the world that has painted a false picture of what it's all about and, and really, I think somebody's got to stand up and just say, man, it, you know, for, for a man to be in love with his wife, not just emotionally, but also sexually, that's the way God wired him. And it is interesting, as I talked last week about men and women are different. And if you recall, the first thing on the list of the men was sexual uh, fulfillment was his number one. And hers was, what was hers? 
<laughs> oh no, I gotta remember that. Yeah, emotional attraction. Yeah, um, like like it's a very different thing. And I remember I said that's not sex, um, and everybody laughed. But the th- the thing is, it's not bad that the guy is number one thing. Aren't you glad that God made that the number one desire for men? If 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 that weren't the case, none of us would be here. Reproduction would not happen. It's part of God's plan for humanity that that people would would have intimacy and and love and it's pleasurable and God made it that way so that the the population would continue. Um, And and, and, you know, with some of these women's movements now and the anti-man, the the Me Too, which is legitimately, uh, you know, calling out wacko men that have behaved horribly. But there's kind of a, a hostility toward men altogether in our culture. And you see some of these women's marches and you see, hear them interviewed and there's a real hatred for men. And it's, it's interesting, it's because I think there's a hatred to the way that oftentimes God wired men to be different. And rather than competing with one another, we need to remember that we complete one another. And, uh, and you know, we have an uphill battle as the Church of Jesus Christ to realize that sexuality and, and the marriage bed is undefiled. Within marriage, man, uh, anything goes except for one thing. There is a caveat in, in marriage that you should know about. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where it says the man's body is hers and the woman's body is his? And, um, and there's, there's this uh, mutual acceptance of that. And, and one of the things that the marriage bed, sexuality and marriage, it should never be something that the other person doesn't want to do or enact on. And so that's, that's the thing. You prefer the other person ahead of yourself. So the, the, the boundary in marriage sexually is not making someone do something they don't want to do. Well, Brad, what if, what if I just don't want to have intimacy with my spouse? Well, the Bible doesn't say that's, that's not okay. It says you're not to defraud one another of, of sexuality uh, in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, it does say you can do that for a short season. It says if you both agree to not have intimacy romantically, sexually, you can agree for a season, but, um, but uh, only for a short season. How long? Well, it says there's one reason if you say we're not going to have sex. Um, and, and by the way, that's not necessarily pressure to have sex, but to, to declare the two of you, we're not going to have sex. The Bible says that's okay as long as it's for this. For the purpose of what? Anybody remember? Prayer and fasting. Well, how long? I think that should be about six years. <laughs> Some of you might say six years. Can you fast for six years? Prayer and fasting. The, the two are together, by the way. So it's a funny thing there that Paul says. He says, yeah, you can, you can together decide to do that for prayer, for fasting. But eventually there needs to be an end to that little prayer and fasting season. And then you should come back together and be romantic together. Um, not a pressure to always have sex and all that stuff. But it's also uh, not a permission to, to abstain and tell the other person, you know, you can't. You shouldn't. The Bible doesn't have any room for that. So there's, there's some complications that people have in marriage because of the world and its sexual promiscuity. Sadly, a lot of marriages bring in ugliness and, and sexual impurity because of previous sexual relationships that they had before they were Christians or before they were married. The world said sex outside of marriage is no big deal. The Bible says sex outside of marriage is fornication. It's sin. And because we've muddied the water and dirtied up the whole topic. There's so many people that just have a, I think our culture is kind of sick of the whole thing. And I'm concerned that a lot of times our young girls are particularly perturbed with the way men see women. And it's partially because of what, you know, promiscuous culture has done to men, but it's also part of the way God wired men. And so for you and for me to have a healthy view of sexuality, you know, we see that right here. He's talking all about her breasts over and over again because he's ravished by her. He's in love with her. And that's good. We shouldn't be like, oh man, what a pervert. That, that's kind of the problem. There's some people that look at that with that sort of disdain, and that should not be. It's the way God wired Solomon, and it's the way he wired men. 
and it's just the way it is, and we should celebrate the way God created it, not the way the world perverted it. Are you guys with me on this one? Uh, I see a lot of horrified people out there. <laughs> like, can we finish the book? Um, yes. It's getting late. So, uh, one more thing to make you uncomfortable since we're already there. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to make this easy with a story. Uh, I was talking, um, this is a true story, and you can test it because um, Tad Slaughter was with me. We were uh, in a kind of a specific situation where we were counseling not only this young couple who were newly married, but also her mother and father. And they were all in the room, and her mother and father were totally angry at the, at the young man. Why? Because he wanted to kiss his wife more intimately than like Beaver Cleaver's mom and dad, if you know what I mean. You know, kind of more of a uh, gone with the wind kind of kiss. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Um, and they say, you can't do that. That's evil, sinful. And, and we were like, what? Mom, dad, you're trying to tell your daughter and your son-in-law how he, they're supposed to kiss each other? Yes, and French kissing is evil. So I turned them to Song of Solomon chapter 7. <laughs> and read verse 9. The roof of thy mouth is like the best wine for my beloved. I said, how did he know what the roof of her mouth tasted like? <laughs> Awkward. Anyway, I, I, people get whacked, you know. Let every man leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife. And I hate it when I see mom and dad's meddling and stuff like that. Oh, that's, that's ugly and painful. Um, well, I hope I made my point there. <laughs> Verse 10. I am my beloved's. And his desire is toward me. Remember, this is what we saw in chapter 6, verse 3. This is also what we heard in chapter six, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, um, that, that she understands he desires her, that he loves her and desires her. That's hopefully what you understand of God, that he desires you. Um, maybe we don't have time tonight, but go to 1 John chapter 4. Again, you know, verse 9 and 10 and verse 19 about how he loves us. He first loved us. Very important. Come, verse 11, my beloved. And by the way, this is the woman speaking, uh, verses 10 uh, to the end of the, ch- of the chapter. Uh, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There I will give thee my loaves. Uh, my loves. <laughs> loaves. <laughs> Sorry. Verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell. Uh, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, my beloved. Um, she's all about now pleasing him with the fruit. Um, remember, they're looking for the blossoms, the fruit. It's, it's, it's talking about a garden, but in, a, in an allegory. You know, her fruitfulness is her love for him. And basically, the beloved saying, is the, flute, is the fruit blossoming? And she's saying, come and look at the blossom of my love for you. It's very mushy, romantic language. And she continues uh, quickly. This won't take long. Chapter 8. Um, she continues, verse 1. Oh, that thou wert my, um, as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. Oh, now she's talking about breasts. This is great. Man, let's... <laughs> no, what, what she's saying? She says, oh, I wish you could be like my brothers. Now, why would she want to be like her, her you know, shepherd king to be like her brothers, biological brothers. She says, when I should find thee without, I would not, I would kiss thee. Yea, I should not be despised. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor wake my love until he please. She's basically saying, I wish that we could have more, more PDA. What's PDA? Public display of affection. She says, my brothers, I can hold their hands. I can kiss them on the cheek and hang out with my brothers. And nobody cares. But with you, I have to be more private, she says, about that. Um, that's what she's actually saying. You can look at, d- dig into that deeper, but that's what she's saying. And then she, they, she asks the daughters of Jerusalem, the choir, you know, don't stir up or wake my beloved. 
So they answer in verse 5, the, 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 the choir, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? That's what they ask. And then he answers, and there's debate about who's talking, but most say it's him. In the second part of verse 5, I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Some argue that this is the shepherd king talking about how, in a sense, that he's the king of kings, the one who's created all things. And there's creation seen in the second part of verse 5. Well, she responds in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which have a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Um, she's basically saying, man, you can't snuff out my love. I, I actually really appreciate the language of this, you know, this part of the Song of Solomon, because it's speaking of a faithfulness. You can't quench, you can't throw water on this fire. It's a vehement flame that's unsnuffable. And if you tried to buy this kind of love, shame on you, it's not purchasable. That's what she's saying. Well, her brothers, or the choir of Jerusalem women, but probably her brothers, choir up in verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build her upon her a a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. What are they saying? Huh? Um, Okay, this is kind of funny. The brother is saying, our our little sister, she's just a little girl, but she's going to stay pure. And so if she's a wall, when the guys come a-chasing her, uh, and they can't get through the wall because she's st- abstaining from sexual pleasures, then we're going to build her a palace. But if she is a door that she opens up to the guys, then we're going to board her up with cedars. <laughs> well, the brothers are like, okay, here comes the young men. Uh, we're not going to let them in. Are you guys with me so far? I know this language is a little tricky. Well, she answers and says, well, she's going to answer, are you a door or are you a wall? She says, verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. She says, I'm a grown-up woman now, brothers. Then was I in his eyes as one found, that found favor. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one for fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Oh, uh, thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and these that keep the fruit thereof, two hundred. Um, boy, this is her saying, I'm, I've, I've saved myself, my vineyard, my garden, for my beloved. And, um, you know, it's interesting because we could spend time, if we had it, which we don't, um, uh, talking about Jesus' parable, um, you know, of, of the vineyard. In Matthew 21, 33 through 46, the, he, he, he had those people care, be caretakers of the vineyard. And he sent some people to collect and they beat him up, sent some more people and they, they stoned him and killed them. So he sent his son and they killed him also. Remember that, that, that parable? And there's sort of a parallel. Um, and, and what that was speaking of, if you remember, remember the, the chief priests and the Pharisees when they heard what he said, they knew that he was speaking of them, that they were the ones who killed the servants they were the ones who killed the son, and they were mad that Jesus was comparing them to that. But it's, it's a great correlation, and, it, and it's the wrapping up of the Song of Solomon fits perfectly with the parable Jesus told there in Matthew twenty one thirty three. So if the priests and the Pharisees reject, rejected Jesus, who would be the ones to accept? That would be the Gentiles, the Gentiles. Um, and that's probably what we could be talking about here as, as the church and this, this beautiful picture of the, the, the bride of Christ and the bridegroom. Well, last couple of verses, verse 13. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Well, that's a good prayer that we hear the voice of the Lord. You know, the, the, the Lord, he's the good shepherd who calls his sheep and we hear his voice. Um, hopefully that's us. Verse 14, make haste, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains 
of spices. Um, basically, she's saying, make haste, come quickly. Come, come to me quickly. And you know, as the bride of Christ, you and I, this is a great way to end the Song of Solomon. Um, you know, the way the book of Revelation ends. Uh, uh, Lord, come quickly. That's what the book of Revelation ends with. And that's what I think of. When I think of my bridegroom, Jesus Christ, I want him to come quickly so that we'll have the marriage feast of the Lamb and we'll ever be with the Lord who loves us with a beautiful kind of love. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so, Lord, as we close up this book, um, this beautiful love story, um, we're impressed by your love for us. Your um, perfect, gracious, unconditional, sacrificial kind of love that you've given for us. And I pray, Lord, as a church that we'd be grateful. I pray that we'd be um, seeking you and spending time with you, not as a got to, but as a get to. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that are hungry for your love and that we seek after it. I pray, Lord, that we would look forward to the day where where our marriage will be sealed at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Lord, give us that hopeful demeanor and a heart to rejoice that 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 day is coming. So bless this congregation tonight, those over in Sherwood and Salem. Bless the, the people at home as we've taken time to look at this beautiful love story. May we ever be impressed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry. You can do that by going online to our website athecreek.com. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 